Well, good morning, church family. Happy New Year. It's good to see you. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, my name is Randy, and uh, it's just such a privilege that I feel to uh, be able to be the lead minister here at the church and uh, um, be happy to meet you uh, after our services uh, or pray with you. Um, uh, We're just glad that you're here. Um, We are in a series of messages through the Gospel of Mark. We began this series um, last fall, and we took about a four-week break during the Advent season as we uh, uh, celebrated the birth of Christ, especially involving those scriptures that uh, dealt with uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. And, um, and we're back at Mark now. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 9, the New Testament book of Mark chapter 9. And uh, our scripture reading is taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. You'll find that in your church Bibles in the pouch in front of you. Um, And if you don't have a copy of God's Word as your own, please take one of those church Bibles and put your name in it and take it home and and receive it uh, as a gift from the church family. I'm going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured Before them, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them, except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is God's word. I want you to imagine for a moment living in your neighborhood and you have someone 
who lives next door to you, great neighbor, wonderful neighbor. In the summertime, they wear keen sandals and shorts and ex officio t-shirts. Wintertime, he wears flannel shirts, blue jeans. Great guy. Totally great guy. Gets the paper for you when you're on vacation. Picks up your mail for you. Uh, um, um, it's got this huge snowblower that just chews up the ice and the snow. Make sure that your driveway is just as clear as his. Great, great neighbor. And you have good conversation with them, enjoy good coffee with him. And, 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 and you ask one day, well, where do you work? And your neighbor's name is Jones. And it's, oh, um, I run a company. Where's your company? Denver. I run a company in Denver. Really? And you live here? Yeah. And you run a company in Denver? I do. Well, Okay, and then Jones says, if you're ever in Denver, why don't you look me up? And I'll show you my company. And gives you his card. you got the cell phone right there. You don't know when you're going to be in Denver, but Jones has extended this invitation, and so you'll think about it. And then the day comes that you go on vacation, and your flight has to be routed through Denver. And through some strange reason... Your flight is delayed by several hours, and you're stuck in Denver there at the airport. And then you remember you've got, well, Jones works, and I wonder if he happens to be, I think, well, let me just call him. I've got time. So you call, and there on the cell phone, just ringing moments ago, there was Jones. There was Jones. He was trying to get a hold of you. But, of course, you silenced your cell phone so that it wouldn't go off again. (laughs) But you answered it that one time as you left the room so as not to disturb the other people in the airport. (laughs) Mr. Jones answers and says, Hi, Hi, it's Randy uh, in Champaign. I'm your neighbor in Clark Park. Yeah, I'm here in Denver. You are where? At the airport. Oh, well, what's going on? Well, I've got this long layover, and it's a long story, but here I am, and you said if I was ever in Denver, and I didn't ever think I was going to be, but I am, and so, well, why don't you, well, let's, why don't you come? Well, let me just get a cab. Oh, no, I'll send a car for you. And so, Okay, wow, send a car for me. 20 minutes later, they're out the front. You go out the front doors, and there is not a car, but a limousine. This long, sleek, black limousine. Driver gets out, opens the door for you, and Mr. Jones is waiting to see you now. Really? Well, okay. Get in, and man, it is posh. There's leather seats, and, 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 and there's a refrigerator. It was wonderful. And you get in the car, and 20 minutes later, and you're thinking that Mr. Jones, Jones, head of Jones Corporation, Jones Corporation runs this, 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 this little company in an industrial park. Wrong. 
wrong. This limousine pulls into this, this almost palatial type. I mean, there's a gate and there's a security and there's a whole long line of cars waiting to get in, but you're in the boss's vehicle. So you go right up there in front of everybody and you go right in and it pulls up into this huge awning these majestic doors and, and as the car stops, as the limousine stops, you're, you're getting ready to open it yourself. But I mean, no sooner than the car stops, someone else outside the vehicle opens it for you. And it's another person who is ready to take you to Mr. Jones who's ready, been looking forward to this. And you go in these wonderful doors and then, and then there's this huge lobby and people are busy going here and there. And you go to the elevator and this beautiful elevator and, and you enter and you go all the way up to the top. And now this is even more beautiful uh, executive office suite with assistants scurrying about, knowing what they're doing. And then you get handed off to another assistant. Mr. Jones has been looking forward to this. And you go to the, these beautiful, beautiful doors that open. And there you are in the CEO's office. You step in and there is Mr. Jones. Only he's not in a flannel shirt and jeans. He is wearing this quite fashionable suit. And I mean dressed immaculately, precisely, beautifully in this tailor-made suit. Fantastic. And he's smiling and you just are not quite sure what to say. And he hugs you and Jones says, I'm so glad to see you. I've been waiting for this. Welcome. And, 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 and the best that can come out of your mouth is, well, um, you run this company? I do. And you, you, all of these people re- report to you? That's correct. And you, you, you own the company? I started the company. Yes, that's correct. And... And you work here. <laughs> I do. I'm in charge. <laughs> yeah, that's what CEO means. <laughs> and you just, I never knew. Now you do. You have a pleasant conversation. It's time to get back to your plane. And before you leave, Mr. Jones says, so glad to see you. I'm so glad you thought enough to come and have this conversation. I hope, I hope we do this again. You know, really. Okay. All right. See you next time. Okay. All right. You walk away and you turn back. You say, wait a minute. You own this company. Yes, you're correct again. Why do you live in Clark Park? Oh, I see. Well, I live in Clark Park because I love the neighborhood. And I love being your neighbor. Push the pause button on that. And I want you to let that image Stay in your brain as you look at Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Our scripture reading.
as we consider this, this amazing, amazing event called the transfiguration, where for a moment of time, the disciples see Jesus in unveiled glory. The story begins in verse 1, where Christ has said to the disciples, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Was he ever right or not? Now, the kingdom of God had been coming in, 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 in bursts all throughout Mark's gospel leading up to these verses in Mark chapter 9. Uh, the kingdom of God, by the way, is simply defined as this, where what God wants done gets done. That's the kingdom of God. Whenever you think of the kingdom of God, just think of where what God wants done gets done. Wherever God gets his way, that is the presence of the kingdom. And Jesus has come on the scene in Mark's gospel, healing the sick, Touching those with leprosy and healing them. Healing someone with a, with a withered hand. Uh, uh, healing a woman who had, had an issue of blood for 12 years. Raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Uh, sending demons out of a demon-crazed man into a herd of pigs who then do swan dives into the lake. All of this exercise of the kingdom of God, the will of God, the accomplishment of what God desired and God's purposes had been done and, 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 and had been accomplished in Mark chapters 1 through 8. And here the disciples are about to see it in an unprecedented way. They are about to see the kingdom and experience the kingdom. You see, you knew, you knew about Mr. Jones, that he ran a company. You knew that before, but you'd never been to Denver. And you'd never been in that car. And you'd never ridden up, ridden up that elevator, you see. You'd known it before, but you knew it by experience later. And that's what we see happening. Six days after Jesus proclaimed the coming of the power of the kingdom of God, six days later, Christ took three of his closest disciples and led them up on a high mountain. Probably it was Mount Hermon in Israel. It's the highest mountain there in the north, 9,220-something feet above sea level. And Luke's gospel, in Luke's version of this event, Luke says that they went up for the purpose of prayer. Now, here's what that means. It means that Jesus took his disciples with him, and while he was praying, they got sleepy 
<laughs> went to sleep and took a nap. That, that's We see that happening in Gethsemane. So probably that happened, this event happened at night. Jesus is in prayer. The disciples are trying to keep their eyelids open, but they're getting drowsy and droopy and sleepy. And just as they're about to enter the first stage of deep REM, all of a sudden their eyes begin to squint and this blinding flash of lightning hit them in the face. Mark's gospel says that Christ was transfigured before them. Verse 2, that word transfigured, our New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language. And, and the Greek word is our English word metamorphosis. Christ metamorphed before them. What does that mean? Keep reading. His clothes became dazzling white. It says whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Literally, literally, verse 3 says, such as no earthly bleacher is able to whiten. They saw. Now, you know, we kind of know what white is because we've got the chemicals today in 21st century America. I can tell you where my bottle of Clorox bleach is. In my house, sitting on top of the washer, where's yours? They didn't have that back then. The whitest that they could offer in the first century was something like drab khaki. And who likes that? I do. (laughs) But a, a professional bleacher could not make those clothes any whiter. And what the disciples saw was Jesus with the veil removed in dazzling, splendid, white flash of glory. One scholar calls what happened a decarnation, a sort of reversal of Philippians chapter 2 as Jesus' glory just appears and emanates before them. This splendid, kingly, royal, dazzling, white, brilliant, bleached glory they were beholding here of the Son of God. In a moment, they were transported to Denver. Or rather, Denver came to them as they saw the king. And what you need to understand is that, well, from heaven's point of view, what the disciples saw as abnormal was, from God's perspective, very normal. Because this was God the Son who lived and reigned in eternal glory and splendor. That was normal. What they were seeing was actually normal. Drab khaki isn't normal. It's not. And we need to remember, as we're going about our business, doing life in this broken, fallen world, that what we see when we see broken lives, when we see broken uh, broken health, we need to understand death is not normal. Disease is not normal. 
wars and rumors of wars and conflict between nations and states. That's not normal, church family. Broken lives and broken marriages, that's not normal. It's not. What Jesus is, what, what they're saying in Jesus, that's normal. And the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth, that is our destiny church family. It's what we're living for. It's what we come and worship for. Beholding Jesus in this glorious flashing, lightning splendor. Now had you been a Hebrew Christian in the first century and you heard these words for the first time and you had Hebrew heritage with you and you're listening and this image is coming to your mind. You would, have, you would have thought of another mountain and another person who experienced God's glory. Moses, Exodus 24, where Moses ascended a mountain and Moses entered a cloud and Moses beheld the, 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 the blazing glory of God in the fire. Moses, the lawgiver. And, and why look in verse 4, there he is. Moses appears, and Mark tells us Elijah with Moses, talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses, two premier prophets. Why these two? Because Elijah and Moses represent the totality of of the Hebrew scriptures, the totality of the law and the prophets, all of the scriptures are personified by these two premier prophets who themselves met God's glory on a high mountain and who themselves had been rejected by uh, God's people and who themselves had experienced uh, uh, mysterious departures. Elijah was one of two who did not taste death. And Moses, well, he did die, but God buried him. Nobody knew where his grave was. And so here, Elijah and Moses, by the way, who appear together in one other passage in the Bible, Malachi 4, 5 and 6, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Oreb for all Israel. There's a mountain, you see. I will send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. These two premier prophets who embody all of the law and all of the prophets there having a conversation with Jesus, the king in his splendid glory who is superior to these prophets. And, and Luke tells us that the topic of their conversation concerned his departure that would be fulfilled at the city of Jerusalem. His departure. Luke chapter 9, verse 30. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And that word departure is our word for exodus. 
Jesus was, a, you see what's going on here? In the Hebrew scriptures, there was this shadow of a former prophet who was in a former mountain, who led a former exodus of God's people into the land of promise. Well, here on the mountain, Jesus in splendid glory, he's the new Moses leading a new exodus to a new land of promise, the new heavens and the new earth. And here Jesus is having a Bible study with these two premier prophets as he's explaining to them the ramifications of their prophetic words of old. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that Bible study? My goodness, as Jesus is explaining, here's what you meant when you said this, and here's how that's going to be fulfilled, and it's going to, there's going to be a new exodus. And if you are a student of Hebrew history, you understand that exodus, while it was a departure from Egypt, was also a death march, because only two individuals who were in Egypt, made it to the land of promise. Joshua and Caleb and all of the other generation died. You see, Jesus is leading a new exodus, a different kind of death march as he goes to Jerusalem to die on the cross. You know, when I look at this and I listen to this and I think about Exodus 24 and Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah, and I I can't help but think of another conversation that Jesus would have after he had risen from the dead with two disciples on the road to Emmaus who were moping. They were defeated because of the crucifixion. And Jesus, who is risen incognito, comes alongside of them and and says, why are you so moping? And they say, where have you been? Don't you know about what happened in Jerusalem concerning Jesus of Nazareth? And then Jesus says this to them, and it's wonderful. He says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart you are to believe all that the scriptures have said concerning the Messiah. And then Luke 24, it's one of my favorite verses. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, there's the figure of Moses and Elijah again, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them everything in the scriptures concerning himself. What I'm telling you is that the the entire Bible is about Jesus, God the Son. Oh, my. Well, there Peter, James, and John were. (laughs) What were they thinking? Well, they were scared to death. Some of us say, I wish I had an experience of God. Most of the time, when people have an actual experience of God, God's first words to them are, fear not. Because they're just absolutely, and you know how some people are when, you know, they get really scared and nervous, and and they get that deer-in-the-headlight look, and uh, they just don't know what to say. It's like, uh, 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 uh." Peter did not have that problem at all. Because Peter did the opposite. When Peter got scared, he just started running off at the mouth. And that's what we see here. Peter said to Jesus, uh, Rabbi, uh, this is, it's, it's good for us to be here. Uh, it's good that the, it's, this is good. Let, get, let me set up some tents here. Uh, one for you, uh, one for Moses. We got the Mount Rushmore of Israel here. Uh, we don't need four. We'll just take three. That's fine. You, uh, Moses, and Elijah, he, he, what's he, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. I 
mean? And, and, and you know, no more, I, no more later than he got these words out of his mouth. You know, Peter's going, can we just, let's just, let's enjoy the scene with these three and we'll just, you know, uh, sing Kumbaya and I'll light my big lighter and, and, and it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Let's keep the fires burning here. And, and all of a sudden, then this, the cloud appears. In verse 7, the cloud appears and enveloped them. It's ominous, dark, frightening, eerie, creepy clouds that you have seen in Midwestern Illinois springtime, especially when there's a tornado warning. It is dangerous and ominous, and this cloud appears. And his voice spoke from the cloud. This is my son. Whom I love, listen to him. Notice, the voice did not say, listen to them. Listen to him. Why? Because the son is superior to the law and the prophets. The son interprets the law and the prophets. The son is supreme And you you can't build a tent for my son. What makes you think you can build? My son won't fit into your tent. He's the tent. You fit into him. And he's the meeting place. And if if there's no son, there's no tent. And if there's no tent, God the Father says, I won't have community with you it's got to be in the sun you listen to him and and listen is not just listen like i'm just hearing noise it's listen with the intention to obey it's not enough to hear god's word to hear god's word is to obey god's word when you hear it listen to him and at that voice that voice which by the way was heard by Jesus at his baptism in Mark 1, now is heard by the disciples. Listen to him. And right then, suddenly, without warning, the cloud evaporated. Moses, Elijah vanished. And there they were with Jesus in his flannel shirt and jeans. Well, what do you talk about going down the mountain after something like that? What are you, I mean, what are you going to say? Huh? Wow. Great game yesterday? Well, I mean, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Jesus was the one who spoke, wasn't he? Because they're going down the mountain. He says, gentlemen, I think it's best that you not speak of this until after the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Agreed? Oh, okay. All right. What did he mean by that? <laughs> risen, Son of Man, risen from the dead? What, what do you mean? I don't know. You ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask. Forget it. I'm not going to ask him. And that's the transfiguration. I suppose I should identify the elephant in the room right now. 
you know? And the elephant is this. Some of you may be thinking, so did this really happen? Come on, bolting hands. Do you really believe this? You know what? I really do. I really do. And here's why. Two reasons. Reason number one, Papias. Papias? Papias. Who's Papias? Papias was an early church leader who lived uh, between the years somewhere around A.D. 70 and A.D. 155. And he had access to the, the, an early generation of Christianity here. There, there's his picture. So I guess it's on his driver's license. I don't know if that's what he looked like. I, I, I don't know. But I know that there was a Papias, and that's when he lived. And he wrote about the Gospel of Mark. And he said that Mark, he attested that Mark uh, was the secretary or the interpreter of the Apostle Peter. So the Gospel of Mark is Peter's written account. Uh, is Mark's written account of Peter's eyewitness experiences. And this is what Papias said about Mark. For Mark had but one intention, not to leave out anything he had heard, nor to falsify anything in them. So Papias says, listen, John Mark wrote what Peter told him had happened to him. Eyewitness testimony. Papias, that's reason number one. And reason number two is Peter himself. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter talks about this transfiguration event when he says, and get this, Peter's almost anticipating the objection on behalf of the listener, you see, because Peter says this, for we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. And then Peter says this, we ourselves, he's talking about Peter, James, and John, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. Peter says, I saw it. I was there. I was involved, changed my life. And, and when you read John 1.14, John 1.14 says, we have seen God's glory, the glory of the one and only. Now you know what John's talking about too. So, yeah, I really believe it happened, okay? But you see, this wasn't given to us just as a neat Bible story kind of biblical science fiction wasn't given for that purpose it was given for a specific reason and that's what I want to talk about why so what what's the significance of the transfiguration the transfiguration is the one event that connects Mark's two most important questions who is Jesus and what have you come to do? And th that question gets answered. See, that's why the transfiguration is right at the 50-yard line of Mark's gospel. Mark 1 through 8, 
Who is Jesus? Mark 9 through 16, what have you come to do? And the remainder of Mark's, well, we know who Jesus is. He is the son of God. I mean, that's clear. But what kind of son is he? What kind of son of God is he? He is the son of God who is going on a death march to Jerusalem to lay down his life for our sins. Jesus is going to be treated the way we would be treated if we were to pay for our sins. And that's where he's going. And he says as much in Mark's 8, 9, and 10. And that's what's behind verses 11 through 13. Oh, the disciples didn't ask about rising from the dead. I'm not going to talk. They're not going to touch that one. But as they were going down the mountain, they did ask him, well, okay, we, we just saw Elijah on that mountain, but why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? I, you know, we're kind of confused. And Jesus says, don't be confused. Elijah has come. He has come in the spirit and the power of John the Baptist. And what did they do to him? They cut his head off, didn't they? They have done to him Everything they wished, just as is written about him. And if that's what they did, if that's what they did to John the Baptist, what do you think they're going to do to me? Oh. Yeah. Jesus is on his way to the cross. But before his march to the cross, Jesus marches his disciples up another mountain. And they witness his unveiled glory. Why? Because, church family, the crucifixion is going to be so bad, so brutal, so vicious, so severe, that Jesus wants them to know, and I believe he wants us to know, that anything that happens to him is going to happen because he gave his life, not that they took his life. The kingdom of God coming in power is not going to happen via the shock and awe of the Roman legions who die a bloody battle in the presence of their enemies on behalf of the emperor. Rather, it is going to come in power by the one who comes to lay down his life for his enemies. And the transfiguration reminds us what Jesus is surrendering. The king left one hill in order to climb another hill. You see, on one hill, Jesus' glory was revealed in splendor, but on another hill, Jesus' glory is going to be revealed in shame. On one hill, Jesus' clothes were dazzling white. On the other hill, Jesus has no clothes. Christ was crucified naked. They stripped his clothes away, and the soldiers gambled it away. On one hill, Christ was flanked by Moses and Elijah, two premier Hebrew heavyweights. On the other hill, Christ is flanked by two thugs. On one hill, supernatural light floods the scene. On the other hill, supernatural darkness blinds those there. On one hill, Peter blurts out, it's so good for us to be here. On the other hill, Peter Oh, wait a minute, he's not there because he ran as a coward. On one hill, the voice of the Father cries out, this is my beloved son. On the other hill, the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the Father is silent. 
what Christ does in Mark chapter 9 is to prepare the disciples and us for the dark days ahead. It's as if Jesus is saying to them and to us, when life gets harsh and hard, remember the mountain. Remember what you saw on that mountain. Remember who I am. Remember what I've come to do. Your suffering is no accident. Your suffering is no accident. Your hardship has just not come about by random chance. James 1 would later say, consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The hardship you face is not by chance. It is so God will polish you into being a splendid, glorious saint. That's why God does that. And the Christians who first heard these words, I mean, they, heard, they, they were facing death at the madman Nero. And as they were being put to death, some of them must have wondered, is this Christianity thing for real? Am I being martyred for a myth? Have I thrown away my life? Peter would give them comfort. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter would say, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have Peter says, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Ah, that theme of tents. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And then Peter says this, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, that's that word exodus again, after my death, you will always be able to remember these things. You know what? My problem is not that I need to learn new things as much as I need to remember what I've been previously taught. And that's what this is about. This is about remembering. Sometimes hardship can make us feel like life is out of control and God can't handle it. And we say, I I just don't think I can handle it. I don't think I can take this place anymore. I don't think I can take this person anymore i got to go back to work tomorrow. I don't think I can take this job anymore. I don't think I can take this boss anymore or this call. I don't think I can take my marriage anymore. I don't think I can take school anymore. I don't think I can take this faith anymore. Serving Christ gets hard. And it's harder than we expected. And it's harder than we often feel we can endure. And we're tempted to think, this is going to go bad. And the one life that I have is going to be wasted on a junk pile. And I must be crazy. I'm taking these risks. I'm getting hammered by critics. I'm paying the price. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And the transfiguration tells us why. Because there is a king who once stood on two hills and he left the one to be hung on the other. And your king says, follow me. The king says that. And your king says, if you want to wear the crown, you have to carry the cross. You just do. And you need to make peace with that. And church family... 
right now you're pursuing a crown. And it may be stuff, it may be fame, it may be affirmation. You're, right now, we're, because we're born to wear a crown. So what crown are you pursuing? And you're going to carry some cross for that crown. And what Jesus is saying is, don't, give, don't let a cheap crown sit on your head. And the only crown that's eternal and priceless and splendid and glorious is the crown that I give. And if you want to wear that crown, you've got to carry the cross like I did. And the beauty is that we learn because Christ is the tent, you never carry your cross by yourself. You don't. We're never alone because Christ came down off that mountain with them, did he not? He comes down the mountain with us. And, and when Christ rose and ascended, what did he do? He sent his spirit to indwell his church. And now through the presence of the glory of the Holy Spirit in our lives now, we are privileged to tell the gospel, Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. God, God's glory, God's splendor now rests by the power of his spirit on his people so that we can descend the mountain and go out into our community and that our community will see the dazzling, bright, glorious splendor of Christ through our lives. And that's what we learn in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Listen, if you're reading Mark 9, and you say, well, I wish I could have an experience up on that mountain, you're reading it the wrong way. Because glory is not some mystical escapist trip up this magic mountain, that's not glory. Glory is serving and meeting needs with love. Glory is when a congregation comes together and goes out to serve in their community. Glory is God's generosity through his church people as they go out later on this year to build a home for an under-resourced family through Habitat for Humanity. And I've already given away what Lisa Shelter is going to tell you in a few weeks. Oh, I can't wait to see God's glory as that happens through you. Stay tuned later. Glory, glory is what happens on Friday night when instead of pursuing your hurt, habit, and hang-up, you come to passionately pursue Christ with other brothers and sisters at Celebrate Recovery. Glory is when you feel pain, but others through you see hope. Glory is when you feel foolishness, but others through you see Jesus. Glory is when mom and dad love their children so much to disciple them in Christ with the partnership of the local church family. Glory is when you feel failure and humiliation but others through you see beauty and goodness. Glory is when you feel alone, but others through you see this great cloud of witnesses. Glory, church family, is Christ in you. And that's why 
we read of the transfiguration. You want the crown, you got to carry the cross. Amen.